This call is being recorded. Hello and welcome to my show, Searching for Integrity. My name really is John Smith, and I'm searching for people with integrity. Why? Because our country suffers from IDD, Integrity Deficit Disorder. Today, I will continue part two of today's show. Uh, Part two will contain various editorials, articles, opinions from uh, a lot of different uh, providers, and I believe you're going to like it, and I think the latter part is going to be very educational as a long essay. So let me believe that we're about on our way. And the first article is, Who Rigged the Census? Undercounts may have cost Florida and Texas another House seat. To begin the editorial board of the Wall Street Journal. Well, well, remember how Democrats accused the Trump administration of trying to rig the 2020 census? Now a Census Bureau study reveals that the Republican-leaning states may have been hurt by mistaken undercounts. On Thursday, the Bureau published the results of its post-enumeration analysis, which it does after every census to identify errors in the count. Its study found that 14 states were over or under counted, by statistically significant margins. Compare that to 2010, when the Bureau's post hoc analysis found that all the state population counts were more or less accurate. States with large overcounts include Hawaii, 6.8%, Delaware, 5.5%, Rhode Island, 5.1%, Minnesota, 3.8%, New York, 3.4%, Utah, 2.6%, Massachusetts, 2.6%, and Ohio, 1.5%. Those undercounted by big margins include Arkansas, 5%, Tennessee, 4.8%, Mississippi, 4.1%, Florida, 3.5%, Illinois, 2%, and Texas, 1.9%. Texas was undercounted by about 570,000 people, while New York was overcounted by 695,000. That's a lot of people. Yet the findings aren't shocking. We noted last spring when the results from the reapportionment were announced that the census counts diverged sharply from the Bureau's 2020 population estimates in many of these states. The inaccuracies may have cost Florida and Texas an additional House seat and given Rhode Island and Minnesota one they shouldn't have received. New York might have also lost another House seat if the consensus census were more accurate. So how did the Bureau get the counts wrong? So wrong. The Bureau blames the pandemic. 
But recall, the progressives in autumn 2020 sued to kick the reapportionment into the Biden administration. By law, the census was supposed to be complete by December 31. Yet Democrats came, claimed that bureaucrats needed more time to do post-survey accuracy checks. They got their way. Whatever accuracy checks the Bureau used, they evidently failed. This week's report notes that overcounts were partly due to people or census workers filling out duplicate surveys. For households that didn't respond to the survey, bureaucrats imputed how many people lived at an address because using other government data, such as welfare benefits, or literally their best hunch. Surprise, they often guessed wrong. Progressives say that Democratic states simply worked harder to increase census response rates. That's no doubt true, but they also fanned conspiracy theories that the Trump administration was trying to reduce minority survey responses to deny federal benefits. This may have had a motivating motivating factor effect as voter suppression accusations sometimes do. It's too late to change the reapportionment, but the administration should take the new data into account in federal funding formulas. If Republicans take control of the House, an oversight investigation into the census seems warranted. Amen. I have to support something like that. Things ought to be done fairly and correctly, truthfully. The next article by Jason Gay, a um, article writer, journalist at the Wall Street Journal. The heading of this title is Nick Saban, Jimbo Fisher, and the comedy of college football's chaos. Coaches are agitated and lashing out about the NIL. The sport only has itself to blame. Here we go. The fancy college football coaches are fighting. I hope you're enjoying this as much as I am. After years of denial, detente, and cognitive dissonance, the extremely well-compensated head coaches of college football are sniping and poking and saying the, the quiet parts out loud. The barn is ablaze, civility civility is asunder, and once sacred cows are noisily clucking around the yard. Moo. This week, Nick Saban, the iconic HC head coach of Alabama and undisputed Lord King of college football, let it rip at a public event about what he sees as the lawless new landscape of college sports now that athletes are allowed to financially benefit from their own. 
name, image, and likeness. On Wednesday, Saban took a direct shot at Texas A&M, an SEC rival, coached by a former assistant, Jimbo Fisher. We, Alabama, were second in recruiting last year, Saban said. A&M was first. A&M bought every player on their team, make a deal for name, made image, likeness. We didn't buy one player. All right? But I don't know if we're going to be able to sustain that in the future because more and more people are doing it. It's tough. Interesting. It was an extraordinary volley from a coach known to be precise with his words. Saban also called out Jackson State, which is coached by NFL Hall of Famer Deion Sanders, alleging that the program paid a recruit a million dollars to attend. Sanders quickly rejected Saban's claim as a lie. Fisher, meanwhile, shot back at Saban at his own press event. Sweating like he'd just done 10 burpees on the floor, he unloaded on his former boss, undenying any recruits had been paid and referring to Saban as God, a narcissist, and the czar of football. It's despicable when a reputable head coach can come out and say this when he doesn't get his way. When things don't go his way, Fisher said, the narcissist in him doesn't allow that to happen. Some people think they are God, Fisher said. Go dig into how God did his deal, and you may find out a lot about a lot of things you don't want to know. We build him up to be the czar of football. Go dig into his past. Yahweh, I'm ready to pop in another tub of popcorn. What about you? <laughs> How did we get here? That's the best part. We got here in a fancy thread count between these men helped make themselves. This mayhem is entirely self-inflicted. The moment college sports like big-time football decided to chase the maximum dollar to seek full market value for its product, it pretended was amateur while paying big bucks to everyone but the athletes. It invited a reckoning and the chaos it now laments. Saban apologized Thursday, saying he should not have singled out A&M and Jackson State, but none of this should be a shock. NIL is the imperfect vessel for college football confronting the capitalist beast it's come become. There is no way to seek billion-dollar dollar TV deals and spend zillions on cathedral-like training centers and eight-figure contract buyouts and act as if you're not fully immersed in a market economy. The notion that college scholarships are sufficient compensation is quaint in an era in which coaching salaries approach $10 million. 
Those fancy fitness centers and locker rooms with flat screen TVs were just recruiting tools by another name. It's part of why the Supreme Court all but laughed the NCAA out of the room last year. NIL is here because the courts are going to make it so. It's basic fairness. It's never made any sense for college sports to deny athletes advantages conferred on every other student on campus. And sure, NIL is an enormously maddening, loophole-filled, mega-hassle nightmare for coaches and administrators forced to figure it out on the fly. But you can thank the NCAA's flimsy preparation for that. The NCAA's approach to implementing NIL was a little like watching someone lay a canoe on top of a car without any rope or bungee cords. Are you sure that's going to stay on when you dry off? <laughs> when you drive off? <laughs> hmm, very interesting. Let's find out. How is it not going to turn into a free-for-all? Everyone was fine with the NIL when it concerned offensive linemen getting comped lasagna. But college sports has never met an idea it won't try to weaponize into an edge. Around the country, booster organizations began pooling money with the intention of compensating athletes via NIL. They weren't shy about this, known as collectives. These initiatives changed recruiting overnight. Suddenly, recruits or transfers in the portal are looking to capitalize. If your school can't offer an NIL opportunity, another likely will. I guess you could complain about the influence of boosters on college sports, and the NCAA has admonished schools to avoid these NIL collectives, but that's a little bit like complaining about the influence of fur on a dog. <laughs> Boosters have forever been a program tool. Pooling money to build lavish facilities, chase coaches, bail out contracts, and yes, occasionally compensate an athlete under the table. Of course, some motivated boosters are going to jump at the opportunity to do it vaguely on the level. It would be a surprise if they didn't. Hilariously, hilariously, Dion Sanders told Anscape.com that he suspected Saban wasn't addressing him and Fisher, but Bama's own boosters. He was just using us to get to where he was trying to get to, Primetime said. Indeed, that's the other way of looking at this situation. This is the market economy. This is a golden goose, liberated, a goose that college football long denied. The players on the field have a clear value that they're finally allowed to realize. Coaches allowed to thrive in a reality distortion field, have to catch up to the rest of the world. Imagine a frustrated college football coach talking to someone in another business. Coach, 
says, I'm so mad. Business owner, why? Coach says, we changed the rules so that employees are seeking compensation. If they don't get it, they might go somewhere else. Long pause, business owner says, you're kidding, right? The bet is that this just accelerates the inevitable, that a selection of college football teams will break away into some kind of super system, apart from NCAA rules, and does this own thing. Likely with some form of payment structure and caps to cut down on a free-for-all. In the meantime, it's going to be a roller coaster. Is it going to get messy? You bet. Will there be scandals? Of course. Will there be regulation? Of course there will be regulation. A better question is, will there be enforcement? Meanwhile, am I going to watch Texas A&M play Alabama? And Jimbo stared down Nick on October 8th in the NIL grudge match of the century? Of course. That's college football worth paying for. <laughs> oh, that was good. Right to, right to Jason Gay at WSJ.com. Very good article regarding football coaches. Now, the last essay that I have today is uh, by Bob Davis and Ling Ling Wei. Mr. Wei. Ms. Way is a reporter for the Wall Street Journal, and Mr. Davis is a former journal reporter. They are co-authors of a 2020 book, Superpower Shutdown, Showdown, How the Battle Between Trump and Xi, Xi, Xi Threatens a New Cold War. So let's begin. This will be our last uh, article today. Between 2018 and 2020, the U.S. and China fought the biggest trade war since the 1930s, hiking tariffs, upending markets, and threatening to plunge the global economy into recession. Since then, the battle has been the subject of dozens of economic studies and lots of political posturing in both countries. Who won? Question mark. Figuring out the answer is surprisingly complicated and contains important lessons for those tempted to wield tariffs-like weapons. Economists routinely say that no one wins a trade war because costs rise on all sides. If that's the case, the U.S., which started the fight and eventually slapped steep tariffs on three-quarters of everything China sold to the U.S. to force changes in Chinese economic policy, lost by not winning. There is plenty of evidence of a U.S. loss. During a trip to Beijing in May 2018, top Trump administration officials laid out their demands, cut the bilateral trade deficit by $200 billion in subsidies for advanced technology, halt pressure on the U.S. companies to hand over technology 
and threaten and strengthen, excuse me, strengthen intellectual property protection. The list was so sweeping that Michael Pillsbury, a China expert at the Hudson Institute and a favorite of President Trump, said it would be like the Chinese flying into Washington and telling us to change our constitution. To press Beijing to comply, the administration carried out four rounds of tariff hikes, which raised average U.S. duties on Chinese goods to 21% from 3.1%. China retaliated with similar levies. The tariffs targeted a bigger chunk of the global economy than ever the Smoot-Hawley tariffs of the 1930s, which are blamed for worsening the Great Depressions. According to the calculations by the economists, Pablo Feigelbaum and Princeton University of Princeton University and Amit Kandewal of Columbia University. The two sides signed a phase one trade agreement in January 2020, which acted as a kind of truce in the trade war. But the deal left nearly all the tariffs in place, so American pressure on China has continued since then. Even so, Little change. China fell 40% short of its commitment to the phase one deal to buy an additional 200 billion U.S. goods over two years, says Chad Brown, a trade expert at the Peterson Institution for International Economics. As for U.S. complaints about Chinese coercion, technology theft, and other misdeeds, United States trade representative reports on China's trade practices are clear. No progress. Earlier this year, USTR used nearly the same wording as in 2017 before the trade war to describe Chinese subsidies caused injury to U.S. industries, excess capacity, world's leading offender, and pressure to hand over technology. U.S. concerns remained unresolved. Clearly, the Chinese haven't changed, says Cleet Willems, a former Trump trade negotiator now at the law firm Aiken Gump. We made it more costly for them, but they are still trying their same policies, though he thinks it's too early to declare a trade war winner. Robert Lighthizer, President Trump's trade representative who acted as the U.S. field general for the trade war, says the U.S. came out ahead in a much more important area. The battle highlighted how China had used trade to get rich at the expense of American workers, he says and how Beijing relied on subsidies, theft, and pressure on U.S. companies to get ahead. My objective was to convince people that China is a problem, an existential threat to the U.S., says Mr. Lighthizer. I think we convinced people. In bold, it reads, political leaders in both the U.S. and China argue that the trade war paid them important political dividends. Now, <clears throat> to continue, since the trade war, fights between the two countries have only hardened attitudes. The Trump administration blamed China for covering up the origin origin of the of the coronavirus pandemic, and the dynamic and the Biden administration has clashed with China over Taiwan and Russia. The Chinese leadership has accused the U.S. of hypocrisy arrogance in trying to block China's rise. According to a recent 
Pew Research Center poll, 82% of Americans now view China unfavorably compared with 47% in 2018. A Gallup poll last year reported that 45% of Americans view China as Americans' greatest enemy, four times as many as then made that choice in 2018. In Washington, lawmakers compete to be seen as tough on China. The Biden administration has continued the Trump administration's tariffs and other sanctions, though it is considering rejiggering some duties and has sought to line up allies in the fight. Mr. Lighthizer has argues, also argues that tariffs hobbled Chinese companies by increasing their cost, particularly when coupled with restrictions the U.S. has placed on Chinese purchases of advanced technologies. We're beginning the process of getting rid of the unfair advantage they had in some areas, especially in technology, he says. The rift with China, coupled with later problems getting supplies from Chinese factories and ports closed because of the pandemic, has also encouraged U.S. companies to relocate from China another U.S. goal. Nearly 80% of manufacturing executives who have operations in China have either moved out of the part in the U.S. of their work to the U.S. or plan to do so in the next three years, according to a survey by Kearney. Sometimes, though, tariffs have had the opposite effect, prompting companies to expand outside America to sell to China. BMW increased SUV production in China rather than export the cars from Spartanburg, South Carolina, after China raised its tariffs on automobiles to 40% from 50% as part of the trade war. We try to match manufacturing capacities of a particular model to where the demand for that model is, says a BMW spokesman. But there is also plenty of data to show that China was the loser in the trade war because it took a bigger economic hit than the U.S. with much, much of the evidence compiled <clears throat> by Chinese economists. China's economy is more dependent on trade for growth when the U.S. so tariffs make China more vulnerable. President Trump had that in mind, according to aides, when he would tell them the Chinese will run out of bullets first. Next in bold print, China has doubled down on the state-led economic model the Trump administration had set out to change. I continue. Chinese companies face American tariffs, exported less to the U.S., reducing hiring, spent less on research and development, and were less likely to start new firms, according to economics economists at Peking University and other Chinese universities. Overall, Chinese GDP loss was three times as high as the U.S. Recognizing that China's official statistics might be subject to what termed manipulation and censoring, Dartmouth County College economist David Chor and University of Hong Kong economist studied satellite imagery of the nighttime sky in China. Industrial areas subject to tariffs were noticeably less luminous than areas that weren't indicating a reduction in economic activity. Per capita income declined 2.5%.
in the tariffed arrows. They estimate compared with unaffected arrows. Overall, the trade war reveals to have negative impact on firms and job seekers in China. Similar to the U.S., though, political leaders in China argue the trade war paid them important political dividends. President Xi agreed, agreed to sign the phase one deal, even though the U.S. only slightly reduced tariffs because he was pursuing higher priority policies. Beijing figured the deal would give it a leverage. If Washington pushed too hard, Beijing could threaten to scrap the trade deal. When Washington did little, little beyond rhetoric to defend the autonomy of Hong Kong in the summer of 2020, after Beijing imposed a wide-ranging national security law, Chinese leaders counted their strategy as success. <clears throat> well, audience, I'm going to uh, cease this economic essay. I hope you enjoyed it, or at least I hope you learned something from it. Uh, I did. Um, it did what it did, and then it did what it didn't. That's how you can put it together that way. Please tell our listeners, I say to you, thank you for, again, listening in search for integrity. So long and happily trails to all. <laughs>